My name is Thomas Lammers, and I'm a philosopher and theatre maker from the Netherlands. I'm part of Collectief Walden, and we're an in-situ affiliated artist. We create non-fictional and ecological, theatrical and visual art in public space. This is a two-part podcast for in-situ, the European platform for artistic creation in public space. Episode 1. What is public space? What is public space? In many an in-situ meeting, I've had a microphone put under my nose and had this question asked, an eager look in the eyes of whomever was recording me. Over the past eight months, I've had ample time to come up with an answer to this question. It might hold the beginning of a radical proposal to both artists and producers and programmers of the arts, or to citizens and politicians for that matter. I will formulate this definition with the hope that it might jostle around some notions of ownership, stewardship, engagement, exploitation and profit around public space. But let me first share a few thoughts on how public space has been a significant presence, or maybe rather an absence in our lives, over the past few months. Last spring, Citizens of most European countries showed an almost un-European sense of uniformity in the face of a fresh common enemy that swiftly swept across our continent, the now not-so-novel coronavirus. While most of us were at home in lockdown, our governments exhorted us to hashtag stay home, keep distance and keep courage. For a brief moment in our time, the streets of our capitals were deserted, public spaces presented themselves as empty spaces to behold, just beyond our access. To accidentally wander around in familiar, usually crowded spaces, with legitimate reasons only, of course, felt like a novelty. At home, our balconies were cultivated into miniature gardens and our gardens into miniature parks. The parks themselves often the only accessible green refuge for those not so fortunate to have a balcony or garden, became strictly regulated zones. They were policed at different grades of surveillance, from actual police and civic officers writing out fines, to local policymakers regulating our collective bodies as numbers, densities, flows and concentrations, to concerned fellow citizens reprimanding the odd callous picnicker or frivolous sunbather. As wealthy urbane elites migrated to their country cottages, vacating their spacious city-centre dwellings, the working classes sometimes stayed home in their smaller, more peripheral tower block flats, and sometimes continued having to go to work, having to use public transport, unsure to which risks they might be exposing themselves. Our governments struggled with the question of how to balance our human rights of gathering and movement with the necessity to safeguard public health and curb a dangerous virus. They responded to this dilemma with varying outcomes and varying degrees of integrity and opportunism. So, why am I talking about lockdown? We've all endured it, and you have as much unwanted intimate knowledge of it as I do. I'm talking about it because these times have made me look at public space in a different way. 
And with that in mind, here comes my shot at a definition of public space. I propose to define it as all the places of which the thriving or flourishing would benefit us all. Let me repeat that, because you're listening and not reading. Public space is all those spaces of which the thriving or flourishing would benefit us all. Like many definitions, this one of course also invites new discussion around the definition of its elements, such as what is the thriving or flourishing of a place? What does the benefit of all mean? These questions are well covered in broader discussions around the ecological and sociological health of spaces, networks and communities. So for now, I'd like to linger a bit on this definition and more precisely on the connection it makes between individual spaces and the larger network of spaces they communicate with in both a social and an ecological way. Public spaces are all those places of which the thriving or flourishing would benefit us all. To understand how radical this seemingly straightforward and commonsensical definition might be, let us for a moment try and list some examples of public space understood as such. The most obvious example of public space is, of course, a square, the mostly empty space between an architectural ordering of buildings. A thriving square functions as a nexus in social and communal life. Encounters and gatherings naturally gravitate towards squares. They both make them possible and give them a certain prominence. Squares facilitate non-hierarchical initiatives and bottom-up manifestations. And, of course, fun and relaxation. Earlier, I already mentioned parks. Parks are great. Parks have many of the benefits that squares have, but invite both more active and more restful behaviors, such as running, cycling and rollerblading, or just lying down for a bit. The ecological function that parks have in human environments are ever more clear. Birds and insects find residence and sustenance. The temperature in parks is notably cooler in the absence of stone, steel and concrete buildings that suck up and retain heat like a sponge. Humans and other animals go to parks for respite. They keep us cool and fresh. The air is cleaner around parks, so there's valuable space to breathe and move for people who only have access to limited personal outdoor space. If we look beyond the notion of access, we will see some other examples of spaces that can be regarded as of public importance. The utilities of a society need not be accessed by the people who immediately benefit from them to be understood as public space. In this way of reasoning, it's not difficult to start regarding any place that could positively impact the larger community or ecology as public. Rooftops are public space because they can be mounted with solar panels or stone crops and make the need for fossil fuels drop because they generate energy and insulate buildings. The lower CO2 emissions that this would result in are certainly of great benefit to the fragile system of human life on this planet. But not only rooftops, also private balconies and secluded gardens are public space 
because insect hotels, bat shelters and pollinator attracting flowers would improve the flourishing of the ecosystem that a city is. Let's regard these places of public interest as public space, even if public access to them is denied, limited or regulated. Can we even think of a place that is not public space? If we accept this definition and likewise accept the reality that everything is connected with everything, this might prove tricky. Certainly, the legal owners of places would object to many of the assertions I've made. They would certainly not like to be told that they should have to do or not do certain things with the places they feel are theirs. To these owners, I'd like to make a point of the connection of ownership and responsibility. So even if you don't accept the ecological truth that causal impact doesn't respect the borders between what is deemed your property and what is someone else's, there's space to explore some other implications of responsibility that might make owners uncomfortable. Ownership, use and exploitation should imply the responsibility for the well-being of the landscapes that are being governed and profited from. It doesn't require much effort to attribute responsibility to a company like Shell for the pollution and ecological destruction, also known as ecocide, of the Niger River Delta. They sought to profit massively from the geological specificities of this landscape and in their quest for oil caused severe damage. You can't have your cake and eat it. If you make gains, you should avoid damage, or when damage should happen, clean up, repair, and compensate the damage done, both socially and ecologically. A bit more imagination might be necessary to draw another conclusion of responsibility, namely, the damage that was done when the extensive logging and mining in the short-lived German colony of Cameroon, in the southeast of the country, led to the unnaturally intense exposure from human beings to chimpanzees. This directly facilitated the spillover of the HIV-1 Group M subtype B, the virus that caused the AIDS pandemic to wreak havoc in vulnerable communities worldwide. Should Germany and the other European colonists not have interfered so relentlessly in the social and ecological fabric of Africa, tearing it up and putting different parts back together, humanity might never have been exposed to this virus in the first place. You might notice that I'm trying to reel back towards the start of this argument. Like HIV, the coronavirus now going around our continent and the entire world spilled over into human hosts because of the mere fact of unnatural exposure of species to each other. To be sure, in theory, any virus could spill over into any other host species if virus and host are biologically compatible and the numbers and the circumstances are right. But the more often you pull a trigger in Russian roulette, the higher the odds are that any one next blow will be fatal. The point I'm wanting to make is this. Sure, it's appropriate that parks are being policed. We've all accepted them as public space. But why is no one telling owners and users of balconies to put up birdhouses, bat shelters and insect hotels? 
why is there no authority able to effectively oversee the illegal logging in Romania and other primeval forests around the world being cut and burned down? Are these places not spaces of public interest? Could they not be regarded as public space? If the exploitation benefits the owner but threatens the flourishing of the place and the adverse effects ripple through society and the planet as a whole, this is the flip side of the coin of ownership and responsibility. You may not destroy what you own if it threatens others. You must maintain or even improve the function your space has in the ecology or in the fabric of society. These duties supersede the limits of ordinary civic or business law, but they should, however, be reflected and protected by them, enshrined in national and international law and enforced by the police systems of the world. The things we think we know about ownership and responsibility are blurring the right course of action in an age of climate emergency and global public health crisis. Public spaces are physical places, landscapes and ecosystems that were perceived to be naturally ours before the concept of ownership was legalized and philosophized by the likes of Jean-Jacques Rousseau and John Locke. And I'm not naive. Although I'm open to being persuaded that such a natural and unmediated relation to landscape and place possibly used to exist, I don't think we can go back. Our engagements to public spaces are now fundamentally shaped by the policies of those who own or govern them and the creativity and the interventions of those who use them. I'm not a pessimist with regards to the potential outcomes this interplay between careful and thought-through policies on the one hand and clever and well-timed interventions on the other might have. Otherwise, I wouldn't be creating art in public space. Both the process of creating and the act of presenting art in public space can positively impact the sites and people's engagement with them. Both process and product can be an either sociological or ecological intervention, or both, in the health and flourishing of spaces and systems. They can be critical assessments of the dominant values around access, inclusivity and community. Whom should a space benefit? Us all. There is no such thing as a place of which the thriving wouldn't benefit us all. In the face of ecological catastrophe and severe stress in our social systems, I say, everywhere is public space. I want to proclaim all spaces public space, and with this subversive and revolutionary act, claim that the shared interest of all human inhabitants of this planet and the natural world overrides private gains. Should someone, privately or corporately, want to hold on to traditional notions of ownership and exclusively benefit from the merits of a place, as we might expect they very likely will, it is upon them to absolutely avert any detrimental impact to others or other spaces. And it is upon us to hold them accountable in the public sphere. In an age of seemingly limitless information, the do-no-harm principle seems more relevant and expansive than ever. 
everything is connected to everything. It's called ecology. This was the first episode of a two-part podcast produced by Quality Valden. The in-situ partners with whom our collective has collaborated most are the Oerol Festival in the Netherlands and the Platz Festival, produced by Artopolis, in Budapest, Hungary. The second and final episode of this podcast will focus on sustainability in the arts, or more specifically, how we can think constructively in both an artistic and a practical way about creating more sustainable arts practices. This podcast was commissioned by In Situ in 2020.